on China, strategic partnerships and regional rivalries uh, jointly organized by uh, Al Shark Strategic Research uh, based in Istanbul and Middle East Institute National University of Singapore. And my name is Omar Aslan. Uh, I'm a senior associate fellow at Al Shark Strategic Research, also an assistant professor at uh, Ankara Yildirim Beyazıt University. So I will be moderating this event and uh, well, which comes actually at a very again timely uh, period uh, because there is an exponentially rising mutual interest between China and uh, Middle East and North Africa. And so do intellectual interest increase in different ways uh, and in, in, in different areas uh, such as how China becomes present in the region the ramifications of its relations in the region, its strategic partnerships, uh, the effects of China's presence on regional rivalries and alliances, China's role in regional conflicts or a possible potential role in regional conflicts, and if China offers a possible political and developmental actually model to, uh, the, to the region, uh, as well as of course, I mean, what China's regional partners expect from it uh, so we will tackle these questions and we have four excellent speakers today in this webinar with us. Uh, we have Alessandro Arduino from uh, Middle East Institute, National University of uh, Singapore. And Alessandro is a principal research fellow at the uh, Middle East Institute, National University of Singapore. And we have uh, again uh, today, Galib Dalai, from Al Shark Strategic Research, and Galib too is a senior associate fellow at Al Shark Strategic Research, also senior associate fellow on Turkey and Kurdish affairs at Al Jazeera Center for, for Studies. And then we have Dr. Kadir Temiz, assistant professor of political science at Istanbul Medaniyet University, and his book is coming actually on Chinese foreign policy towards the Middle East uh, soon. Uh, and then finally, we have uh, James Dorsey with us again, also a uh, senior research fellow at the Middle East Institute National University of Singapore. So after this introduction of our speakers, let me say that in the initial round, I will give each speaker about 10 minutes or so uh, for the presentation. After four presentations, then I will open up the floor for Q&A uh, segment. Uh, and there are two ways for you uh, to actually send us your questions. You can write your questions on the uh, Zoom chat box and I will collect them and then I will ask them as long as the time limits, uh, within the time limits that we have. Or you can use raise hand function in the bar down your, on your screen and then unmute yourself and then direct your question uh, to us as well. Of course, we will appreciate as usual, this is a cliche, but we will appreciate short, concise, direct questions and please no comments or pirate speeches. And then I would also like you to keep please uh, your mics uh, muted uh, during the presentations uh, and uh, that will be really appreciated uh, too. So uh, with that, I would like to begin actually, and I would like to begin with uh, Alessandro. Alessandro, recently you wrote for Al Shark Strategic Research uh, a piece on China in the Middle East, and it was basically 
uh, after uh, Minister Wang Yi's uh, sixth country trip to the region. I would like to begin with you and ask you, uh, is the Chinese approach to the region changing since that visit in the, uh, in the months that, has, uh, that have followed uh, after that visit? And uh, Alessandro, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, first, uh, let me start thanking uh, Al Shark Strategic Research and especially you, Omer, for making this webinar and cooperation possible. Having said that, uh, uh, there is a lot of discussion and interest uh, how China is proceeding its inroad in the Middle East, uh, from energy to the Belt and Road Initiative to the Digital Silk Road. In this respect, uh, uh, if we look uh, at uh, China's official and especially a Chinese academician, we see that the trend uh, is still the same. What I mean by this, they still think and elaborate to the fact that China abide by the decades old principle of non-interference and then the Middle East is still far away from a Chinese border. Uh, in my personal opinion, this uh, uh, approach from China is changing, is already start to change, and the discourse about China in the Middle East is not only energy. Uh, of course, energy is utmost important for Chinese uh, national security and the sea lane of communication uh, with Arab Peninsula, especially, and with Iran. And in this respect, more than 40% of Chinese energy come from the Middle East, Gulf, Iran, and Iraq. But then uh, there is an increased approach of China in looking at the Middle East. And uh, I do believe uh, that, especially looking at the time of Foreign Affairs Minister Wang Yi visit to six countries, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Oman, Iran, and Turkey, uh, it defines a different approach to the region. And by different approach, I mean uh, China is slowly shifting to a selective engagement. Of course, we don't have to forget one important part. Uh, the discourse about China is the Middle East is not related only uh, to China energy appetite that start to show up uh, in 2010, 2012, but also China uh, and I mean by China, the People's Republic of China, has a long history of engagement with the Middle East uh, and the MENA region. If we look uh, at 1955 during the Bandung Conference, uh, at the time China was on the side uh, related to the anti-imperialism, uh, to the strive for national independence, uh, and beside China had a limited amount of resources, it utilized that resource uh, in support of several uh, movement. One of the most important was the support to the Front Liberation Nationale Algerienne, uh, to the PLO, especially Fatah, uh, and even uh, uh, supporting the Marxist armed insurrection uh, of the Dofari in Oman. And then this started to take a different shape in the 80s. We are at the time at the peak of the Cold War, where China is uh, distancing itself from Russia. And then we start to see an, a participation that is more cautious. Then, as I mentioned early, 2012, uh, we see this increasing appetite for energy resources, uh, and China foreign policy is shaped by this need. But then uh, we start to look at uh, an increasing interest, especially in the 2016, with the publication of a white paper on uh, China and Arab white paper. And then let me underline, is China and Arab white paper, it's not China in the Middle East. And if we look uh, at the discussion of Chinese academicians nowadays, 
starting with most famous like Shandin Ling, Sun Degan, and so on, we see that there is a, a look of a different approach of this selective engagement, or even uh, other academicians like Fan Honda, for example, underline how China still need to look at different country, uh, not only at the Arab one, but at country like Turkey, like Israel, uh, in, uh, and Iran, of course, in the Middle East. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the timing is quite important uh, during the trip of Minister Wang Yi, because it was just after the meeting in Alaska, in Anchorage, with the American counterpart Blinken. I do believe that meeting was an ultimate exercise in futility, uh, but when uh, Blinken underlined uh, the so-called 3C of uh, competition, cooperation, and collaboration with China, then Minister Wang Yi moved in the region, in the Middle East, uh, looking at different set of cooperation. And we can basically summarize this uh, when he met uh, with his uh, counterpart in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Prince Faisal bin Farhan, uh, in four points, essentially. First and foremost uh, was uh, another push forward for the Chinese health diplomacy. Uh, Chinese vaccination in the Gulf, for example, UAE started to produce, uh, I don't know if it's Sinopharm or Sinovac, but then uh, it started a momentum, a momentum that nowadays in some ways backfiring on China, on the health diplomacy. Then uh, we look uh, at the comprehensive strategic partnership. This is the highest that China has in terms of economic and diplomatic exchange with the country. And in the Middle East, uh, there are five countries, uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Iran, Emirates, Algeria, and Egypt that have a comprehensive strategic partnership. Moving from then, there is a very interesting, in my opinion, overlapping between uh, the digital Silk Road, that is uh, a part of the Belt and Road Initiative, especially in the Gulf. When you see there are countries like uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE with their vision 2030, both for the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and then for even for Mohammed bin Zayed, the offer of China digital technology is appealing. Of course, this country with all the other countries in the region need to actively balance their relation with the United States and the relation with China. Of course, everybody knows that China is an economic juggernaut, but at the same time is not a serious security provider. There is uh, in the region this diffused anxiety on the fact that the US is leaving. United States is not leaving the region. It's basically reshaping his old role uh, about uh, security balancing as an outside security balancing uh, with more probably special forces and drone and less boots on the ground. But definitely the military base in Bahrain and uh, in Qatar are not leaving. And then US still is going to be a player. Of course, when we read the China enroding in the Middle East, uh, we always have to talk with the elephant in the room, and this case is Israel. And China has a very good economic, even defense relationship with Israel, but then have to balance uh, with the Palestinian cause and with the other country, especially in the Gulf. And of course, uh, is, is, is a fact that just after meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, then uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Wang Yi uh, moved to Iran, in Tehran. And then uh, uh, there has been in, uh, in the last month and even year, a lot of discussion about the 25 year accord between uh, Iran and, uh, 
and the People's Republic of China. In this respect, uh, my colleague James Dorsey, that is here, also with uh, Dr. Razib Suja, this is our Middle East Institute expert on Iran, have been discussing intensively uh, on one fact, basically, that most of this 25 years agreement uh, uh, has been overblown out of proportion uh, in, in the latest month. But still, having said that uh, the relationship between Tehran and Beijing, especially after, if we are going back to some kind of JCPOA, is going to be very important, not only for oil and gas from China, but for the inroad of the Belt and Road in a, in a very strategic region. Uh, in, on this, of course, as I mentioned before, balancing act is the most important part for all the country in the MENA region, balancing between China and the US, but of course there are countries like Iran who doesn't have much chance, for example, to avoid the, the Chinese digital embrace. And, and a very important part, uh, and then this one of the reasons today I'm very happy to have, for example, Dalip, Dalip with us, is that I'm going to learn a lot about the relationship uh, and uh, the evolution of what China uh, is uh, having with, with Turkey. Uh, there is uh, a lot of research and publication there on uh, Turkey and Russia, but uh, the relationship between Turkey and China is still uh, not very well, or let's say enough discussed in these days. And I hope that today we can a little bit uh, uh, evolve more on, uh, on this topic. Uh, having said that, uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, one of the points is the overlapping between the 14 five-year development, Chinese development plan with the vision in, uh, in the Gulf. And last but not least uh, is China pushing for a multilateral security architecture in the region uh, with uh, a regional order. The Chinese assumption is based uh, under the, the United Nations. And uh, basically uh, the big question that most of the country in the area uh, are still looking forward for an answer is to see how Chinese economic diplomacy, especially in the Belt and Road and the Digital Silk Road, is going to shape into political influence. And with this, I just give back to you the floor, Omar. Thank you. Uh, Alessandro, thank you very much. Uh, Galip, um, Alessandro just said uh, that uh, some states in the region, in the MENA region at least, they are balancing between United States and China. So I would like to ask you, um, regional partners of China, I mean, are they betting on China uh, and why, of course? Can you uh, discuss that, please? Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Umar, and it was an excellent okay. uh, intervention by Alexandro. Uh, basically, uh, yes, I mean, we do see partially that the China question or the China is being more and more discussed at the regional level. But the meaning of this is why this is the case is, uh, is, uh, is multiple. First and foremost, the China as an economic story. I think that's a global story and with regional repercussions. So mm -hmm. as right now, the China question discussed more in terms of China, uh, China's economic resurgence, whether real or not real, but as it is discussed in terms of China's economic resurgence, the China question in the Middle East is tightly and neatly linked to China as an economic actor. But here we have to caution between the reality and expectation gap because most of the China as an economic actor in the region is premised on expectation rather than the reality. I mean, yes, I mean, in, uh, for some regional countries, uh, China already is, or actually many regional countries already is the largest economic partner, 
But when you look at for countries like Turkey, the China's uh, share in the foreign direct investment in Turkey is less than 1%. So the China question as an uh, China's economic activeness in this case is more, uh, more of an expectation rather than a reality. Secondly, the China story is part of the Middle East, uh, is you know, a subfile of the, uh, mid, the restructuring of the Middle East with international powers. Because we, are, we were used to Middle East to be either bipolar during the Cold War, meaning the US and Soviet Union, and unipolar after the, uh, unipolar, uh, after the Cold War, meaning the domination of the US, basically. And now in recent years, uh, there is more and more uh, multipolarity in the Middle East in terms of the Middle East engagement with international powers. And there two actors come to the fore. Uh, China and Russia. Russia comes to fore as a security partner, and China comes to fore as an economic partner to the region. Where, like the, China, the Russia, tried to leverage its security activeness uh, into into economic uh, benefits as well too. So basically, Russia tries to capitalize on its security activeness by cultivating more economic links with the region. And this is already clear. You see, the, uh, you see uh, that Russia is making inroads into the, for the first time, into the arms market of many regional countries. The Russia, it tried to kind of have more financial arrangements or relations with the Gulf states. So therefore, the Russia tries to capitalize on its security activeness by cultivating more economic presence in the region. But China does not want to do the same. So China does not want to use its economic activeness uh, for a security role. To the, to the contrary, China is happy that thus far it's, it is playing as an economic actor without incurring a security cost for its economic activeness. And it's quite happy that most of these uh, costs for the security, uh, the security cost is being, uh, is being incurred by the players like uh, like the like the US, uh, and related to this, I think that China likes the Middle East uh, for two other reasons as well. Too, a the more the Middle East is sucking in the US energy, time, presence, the better for China because that means, uh, or, or similarly, the more Middle East causes the international disruption, that is like better for Russia because that means that the U.S. will have a relatively less time, energy, and focus on China's on the areas that matters for China more, being the South uh, South China Sea or the other areas. So, in this regard, the more uh, the more chaotic the U.S. is, as long as the energy uh, routes are uh, secured, the better for U.S. Uh, the better for China, because thus far the it is not China that is bearing the economic cost of this. Uh, security, security trouble. Rather, the security trouble in the region is actually sucking in more the Western energy, Western time, Western resources, and that is a good news uh, for uh, for China. The another uh, dimension of the China story in the region, the fact whenever the China is the is the shorthand for many regional uh, governments to tell the West that they are unhappy with the West. I mean, China and Russia is the way that the Middle Eastern actors are telling the West that they are unhappy with the West. 
and they have alternatives because whenever the Middle Eastern countries discusses, whenever the Middle Eastern countries uh, talks talks about uh, that they have an alternative international, the alternative international partnership schemes, the countries that are mentioned are almost exclusively it's uh, Russia and China. So that is a way to express dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction uh, with the uh, with the West. Uh, but nevertheless, thus far, the Russia, the China is nowhere fit to be the security provider that the Middle Eastern countries need, particularly in the Gulf. The Gulf is still a U.S. and the Gulf security uh, structure is still uh, very U.S. centric, and it's likely to remain so for quite a long time. The, the U.S. Uh, there is no decrease in the U.S. capacity in the region. There is decrease in the U.S. commitment in the region. The U.S. is the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is making less commitment, less security commitment uh, uh, comparatively. But it's not that doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S. is less capable uh, when it comes to regional security. And another subfile for this is. The China provides, similarly Russia, similarly other Asian countries, venue for some Middle Eastern autocrats for normalization in international affairs. Uh, after the coup in Egypt, for instance, you see the Sisi regimes making like you know many many visits uh, to China. After the uh, killing of the Jamal Khashoggi, you see uh, when the MBS still is ostracized, uh, still is when it's avoided by the Western actors. One way for the MBS to rehabilitate its image internationally was through journeys into the Asia. So in a sense, this is for Middle Eastern autocrats at a time of difficulty, a mean to rehabilitate, to normalize their image uh, internationally. Another dimension is the China represent a magic formula for the Middle Eastern autocrats. This is particularly the case after the Arab Spring because the Arab Springs the demonstrated a legitimate crisis, legitimacy crisis in the region. And the question is, how can you overcome this legitimacy crisis in the region? And the answer of the protest on the street of the Arab uh, world was, well, by uh, providing more venue for the political inclusion, for democratization and for economic progress. The China basically tells, well, actually, to cultivate, uh, in order to cultivate legitimacy, you don't need to have political participation. Development is the way for the legitimacy. You can, you can uh, cultivate legitimacy through development, not necessarily through the political, in, uh, political inclusion. And this is the dream that the mid, many Middle Eastern autocrats loves it. They would love to cultivate legitimacy through some form of development without providing value for political participation. The, the challenge is the Middle Eastern autocrats failed on both accounts. They failed on the demo, uh, development account and they failed on the political participation account. So in this regard, they failed. But nevertheless, this Chinese story here is still the dream uh, story. How can you uh, cultivate, how can you cultivate legitimacy without political reform, political opening and political uh, participations? And related this, uh, I mean, if we discuss that there was an English way of life, the American uh, dream, can we speak of a Chinese, let's say, model in the region? 
Uh, well, the Chinese model, the constituents of the Chinese model are not the Middle Eastern societies. Like for instance, when you speak of the American dream or the English way of life, the constituency was uh, mostly societies. But in the Chinese case, the constituency are mostly the regional governments, the autocrats, uh, the, uh, the authoritarian regions. Because as I said, this model represents uh, cultivating legit legitimacy through development without uh, engaging in any significant or serious uh, way of political reform. Uh, so therefore, there is an uh, there is a governmental level constituency for this uh, for this model, but there is no uh, there is no societal level uh, constituency for this uh, for this model, even uh, because in the end uh, that means that there will not be means for the political participation in the region. So there will not be means for the societal participation in the region. Even though the ones uh, you have, like you know, certain groups that uh, that has like the posture of the pro-China. I mean, putting aside the business community, business community for obvious reason, uh, highly like the sports, good relation with China. But if you set this aside, the other constituents of China, mostly the fringe groups, actually the motivation, the real motivation for their pro-China Chinese results from their anti. Westerners. So in a sense, they dislike West, not necessarily they love China uh, for, for many of these uh, countries, because, uh, for many of these actors, because many of these actors has actually very limited knowledge of uh, uh, what constitutes a China model as well too. So in this regard, we should see this, uh, we should see, I mean, part of the motivation of this group is their dislike, displeasure, or dissatisfaction with the with the West, or the anti-Westernism as a political or ideological uh, ideological stance. And when you look at it, actually, the pro-China sentiment it's mostly motivated through ideological uh, uh, ideological imperatives rather than you know uh, other uh, other imperatives. And finally, the China will have trouble. Uh, when it comes to its public image in the region, as long as it continues to persecute the Uyghurs. Because yes, you, you can cultivate the ties with the, uh, with the Middle Eastern autocrats. Yes, you can buy their silence. Uh, yes, you can threaten them in uh, one way or another, but at a certain level, as long as, as, long as this uh, Uyghur persecution continues, the China will have difficulty to reach out to the Middle Eastern people. So there will be a societal resistance against China's presence in the region. I can leave it here. Okay. Galip, uh, thank you very much. Um, excellent about the, you know, what China offers, uh, uh, the Chinese model and it's uh, what it may mean uh, and the comparison with the West, of course, the United States and the European uh, models uh, was interesting. So, uh, Dr. Temis, I mean, Kadir, can we go back to the drawing board and talk about Chinese national interests in the Middle East? Let's take a step back. And then, if you will, uh, let's discuss uh, uh, what those Chinese national interests in the region are in the first place. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Uh, 
Uh, first of all, I thank uh, to you and, of course, organizers uh, to invite us here to discuss the really important uh, problem for us and studying China. And we are um, maybe more than 10 years are um, discussing this uh, China, China's rise and China's rising phenomenon. And I uh, totally agree with um, Alexander and Galipojam. Uh, about the changing or the transformation of this uh, Chinese uh, national interest in our region. And, but I have a different idea about the implication of this national interest. And uh, some Sundegang or, or Fan Hongda and Alexander mentioned uh, about them. Uh, maybe even in the white paper, Chinese emphasize on uh, Arab, China Arab uh, security partnership, something like that. Uh, but something we are missing here, uh, and that is the non Arab uh, perspective in Chinese foreign policy for the Middle East. Actually, that's um, an interesting topic for me. Uh, actually, if you asked me 10 years ago about the China's, uh, you know, um, influence or the role in our region, generally in the Middle East, I will say that China is a natural part of this region since uh, China has basic and natural uh, national interests such as economy, for example, like every country actually. Yes, the United States and European Union countries and Germany, France and others are also coming here to make some economic cooperation and get benefits. Uh, Chestra is is the it's very simple, and another perspective is diplomacy. Yes, uh, there are a lot of Chinese businessmen, and not only the statesmen, and they are coming uh, from uh, Chinese Communist Party. They are visiting these countries, and from military, social, and cultural aspects. And I I will say that China is engaging. Yes, but ten years later as Alessandro also mentioned about it. Uh, now I'm also seeing a changing and transformation of this China. So what kind of China we have and more involved and more aggressive, assertive and coercive power, in my opinion, of course, and trying to influence uh, other countries, sometimes even using ideology. In my opinion, actually, the the most critical point here is to find a typology or a framework to define China's, China's national interest. Um, because, you know, in academy, and we are looking for a, some similar repeating patterns to understand something in, in the world, in the nature. So as a similar to that one in, in the foreign policy realm, I'm looking to these patterns. Uh, and I think we have some patterns in Chinese foreign policy uh, in even toward the Middle East. So here, uh, I want to summarize for you this typology. I want uh, three justifications, uh, by the way, uh, about China's national interest. Um, and, you know, this national interest uh, influence the policies in the region. Uh, 
We are writing an article actually with uh, dear Murat Öztun. And Murat also is here, and I will be happy if he participates to my discussion in uh, in QA section. And China's national interest in the Middle East. Uh, we propose a typological framework uh, to define China's national interest in the region with three justification. Uh, the first one is actually global needs uh, or global economic and um, political or social conditions. Let me define it like the global audience. China cares so much about this one. Sometimes we, you also define it, they care about the global audience and global needs and their perception in other countries, etc. The second justification uh, of the national interest is interdisciplinarity. Uh, so well, I mean that uh, China's, and I will explain later then, but uh, China's national interest is complicated, cannot only explain by uh, the energy, as Alessandro told us, uh, or only politics. There are social and cultural aspects of this debate and historical and even sociological roots of this debate. And the third justification is, in my opinion, uh, the power and ideology. They um, also affect, influence China's national interest. So it means these three justifications determine China's national interest in the Middle East. Okay, now let's give some examples uh, to explain our typology for China's national interest in the region. The first one was the problematic strains between the national interests of any nation states and the agenda of uh, transnational society or global needs, global institutions, especially represented by some global institutions, of course. I mean, there is a tension between China's core national interests and global needs. In our region, in the Middle East, uh, an obvious example to this one is China's position in Iranian nuclear crisis, for example. Although China gets benefit from lucrative trade and partnership with Iran, international organizations like United Nations, International Atomic Energy Agency, or a non-proliferation treaty regime uh, create a dilemma for China in this case. Normally, China's one of the core national interests, as you easily guess, is uh, to support economic development inside China and actually to make the Chinese economy more sustainable. Here in this example, of course, Iran's oil and gas, an important source to reach such objective. Uh, but there's a dilemma here, as I told you. Uh, since China's another core national interest is to engage with the global institution or to convince global audience, China generally has a tendency to change its core national interest in favor of this global audience or international institutions, global needs, etc. They generally don't like to fight with global public, rather they want to influence them by using a propaganda mechanism that you know um, in the case of Iranian nuclear crisis, China has, in my opinion, made huge concessions to reach a deal in 2015. Why they did it? 
and they didn't fight like today because at that time they've seen uh, the global audience was very influential in, in that debate and they supported the deal even there uh, was some problems in this deal. And that's, yes, uh, that's the first time, that was the first typology and uh, our finding is we should seriously consider about the role and impact of global institutions and global public opinion in Chinese foreign policy. They are changing this one according to that, that uh, global audience. The second justification is, uh, is the analyzing national interest and is derivational processes like energy, economy, interest, political interest, geopolitical interest, etc. This requires taking social sciences into account as a whole from international political economy to historical sociology, even religious studies, especially in our region, we need this one. For example, China officially accepts that China is part of the world, not an isolated country. So their national interest may also shaped by this diverse social, cultural, and religious matters. In the case of the Middle East, uh, I, I can give lots of examples, but I will just give you three examples to show the role of different disciplinary perspectives to understand the transformation uh, of China's national interest. For example, the first one is political economy. Uh, from Gulf countries to Iran, China's core national interest to secure this energy and to maintain this energy needs, China has developed cross relations with them and they didn't care so much about their language and their problem, for example, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So they, they implemented a neutral uh, strategy or uh, policies and even Israel and uh, Arab nations, the problem. And even we can find this pattern in the history as well. For example, in, in the Iran-Iraq war, uh, they support, they try to support both. The second example is uh, in, in, in that part, uh, in the interdisciplinarity about the historical roots of the relations with regional countries. For example, the Uyghur issue. Uyghur issue can also uh, show that uh, China's historical connections affects the foreign policies. For example, China needs heavily Turkey's supports, especially in its BRI as a hub and as a hub state between you know, you know, Europe and the Middle East and a stable country in that region. Uh, we have more stable than our neighboring countries, we know it, and, but Uyghur issue creates a problem of trust. What we expect is that China should make some concessions to deal with this uh, Turkey or in other countries, but they do not. Why? Because there is a really strong trust problem here. So China's internal security perception here, the nationalism or something like that, prevail over current national interest and they uh, push the Turkey to behave um, in, in their way uh, in the in, in Uyghur issue. And uh, by the way, uh, as I told you, the Turkish-Chinese relations not limited to Uyghur issue. There are lots of uh, other issues here we are talking. 
And from social and cultural perspective, for example, China needs to improve its image or per Chinese perception in these countries in the Middle East by using public diplomacy. So for this reason, uh, they are you know, establishing the Confucius Institutes like that. And as it is, Iran is also not limited to oil and gas. Here, the revolutionary roots or um, anti-US sentiments in Iran is very influential in Chinese in China's national interest. Okay, um, so here uh, at, at the end of the second justification, our core, core finding is we should seriously consider about interdisciplinarity or multiple factors influencing China's national interest in our region. The third justification is uh, about the power and ideology, as I told you before. And actually, uh, Alessandro also told us about this, you know, uh, revolutionary and ideological, uh, ideological uh, foreign policy formation of China, especially in the Cold War. We know it from Algeria, Palestine, Oman, and Alessandro. Uh, mentioned about them, and even in Palestine, Fatah and Hamas, they supported. So, but uh, this ideology-oriented uh, foreign policies changed, as we know it, uh, especially after 1978, after Deng Xiaoping uh, period. We know that the China started to implement more pragmatist foreign policy, but. Uh, especially in the last couple of years, and maybe last de decade, uh, it started to change, especially in the Xi period, in the Xi Jinping period, we have seen a more ideological discourses uh, and sentiments in Chinese foreign policy. So ideology still uh, existent in Chinese foreign policy, and we should uh, really seriously consider about it. For example, in Palestinian issue, still uh, they see they are supporting the opposite side, and there Israel as occupiers they accept, and Turkey also in an ideological issue for China. You know that and pan-Turkism and especially nationalist sentiments in the western border of China and Uyghur issue. And they don't want a kind of uh, nationalism. They support a different kind of nationalism inside China. We know it. And the Han-centric reading of the history. Uh, but on the other hand, there is a dilemma here because they are against the rise of Uyghur nationalism. But they are actually in feed each other. Uh, of course, I don't have time to discuss all of the issues here, but uh, in the last, uh, this or another uh, core finding in that typology is we should seriously consider about power and ideology influencing China's national interest, especially in the last couple of years. This ideology uh, started to be, be, become really influential. Uh, I, I think even in Turkey, even Sri Lanka and Myanmar and we can Pakistan. I can give lots of examples, but we need more study uh, about this influence actually.
So as a result, China cares about global audience and through China's national interest changes according to which disciplinary perspective or which factor we are talking, energy, economy, culture, history, etc. And the third one is China's national interest still shaped by ideological perspectives. And you can also read them and China justifies its policies at least with these three justifications. Okay, thank you for listening and we can continue to debate uh, maybe if you want in Q&A section. Um, Kadir, thank you very much. I think this typology is very interesting. I'm sure there will be questions about this. I mean, one question maybe um, I can pose to you afterwards in the Q&A segment is, you know, in this typology, uh, I, I guess on, on some issues, uh, there will be a clash between different considerations between global public opinion and global institutions and at the same time power and ideology. So what happens, which ones comes on top, I think is just one question that popped up in my head, but we can talk about this, I think, in the Q&A segment. So finally, I would like to go to James and he is waiting patiently. And the, I think uh, the question that I really care about, uh, about China's presence in the region is, again, uh, Alessandro mentioned about this, that, that uh, China is obviously, we know, the economic juggernaut in the region. And Ghalib said the United States still has more capability to provide security uh, than, than China right now. So the question is, will China ever be a security provider, a really a political actor in the sense of picking sides and making its positions very clear in the region? We will, will we ever see that China in the region? And James, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be with friends and esteemed colleagues on this panel. And in some ways, it's, I have an easy task because I can build on much that has been said already. I think the short answer to your question is, you know, in one word, yes. The question is not whether, but the question is when and under what circumstances. And I think what you've seen, and uh, Alex alluded to that, um, Dalit to a degree also, what you've seen uh, over at least the last year, maybe a little bit longer, is a changed Chinese message that has been consistent and has been on the one hand a stick and on the other hand a carrot. The stick has been the Middle East isn't important. It's less than 5% of our investments. Uh, our focus is on the Asia Pacific. Uh, the United States, whichever way you turn it, the Middle East is important. It's important for all the reasons that uh, uh, the other three speakers have mentioned already. Energy, security of, of the flow of, of, of energy, uh, geography, uh, maybe more so in some ways in uh, the non-Arab Middle East and in the Arab Middle East, but nonetheless, geography. Uh, and so the, the stick has been, you know, you're not important, was basically say, get your act together. And what does get your act together mean? That was the carrot in which you saw uh, intellectuals with close ties to the government uh, 
lay out principles that were really then um, uh, made official during the Wang Ji visit to the Middle East in which principles were laid out uh, on, which, on the basis of which China would be willing to engage. I think what that means is, uh, is two things. One is China wants to see protagonists in the Middle East be, be willing and show an ability to manage conflict. They recognize that conflict may, may not be able to be resolved. But in order to avoid what they see as the American experience of being sucked into the myriad of com conflicts and disputes in the Middle East, they need to see a willingness on the part of Middle Eastern uh, parties to engage. I think you've seen a response to that already. Uh, so we've seen over the past year, certainly over the past uh, six to seven months, uh, a reduction of tension in the Middle East. Various countries trying to re either uh, establish diplomatic relations, uh, restructure relations that are strained, uh, take the, uh, the, the pinch out of, out of what out of confrontations that, like between Saudi Arabia and Iran, much of that has been attributed to the rise of the, the, uh, the Biden administration. I would argue it's also in part a response to the messaging that the Chinese have been very consistent about. It's clear in an environment in which the United States, as Alex correctly pointed out, is not going to abandon the region, but wishes to restructure its engagement in the region, it's clear that uh, regional players need to start uh, hedging their bets. They also clearly understand that at this point, neither China nor Russia are either willing or able to replace the United States as a security guarantor in the region. But both China and Russia can, can, can offer them a degree of leverage in which they can play in the margins. And you see that in arms purchases, for example. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. Um, I think what you're also seeing in terms of Chinese interests in the region is that short-term interests may conflict with longer-term interests. So, Ghalib, for example, mentioned uh, a, a Chinese interest of the United States being mired in Middle Eastern problems and therefore distracted from, um, uh, from the Asia Pacific, the China, South China Sea and so on and so forth. That's true, but tension in the Middle East, conflict in the Middle East endangers the security of energy flows. And so there's a balancing act. The Chinese may very well be willing to uh, step in where Gulf states either want to buy or purchase uh, military equipment that the United States will not sell to them either unconditionally or not sell to them at all. But the problem with that is that they're contributing to an arms race and uh, to the potential of an escalation of conflict, which again is 
you know, a contradiction between what is a short-term interest and what is a long-term interest. Now, having said all of that, I would argue that in regional terms, the Middle East is one of those areas, and it's hard to think of another area, but certainly one of the few areas where the principle of competition and, co and simultaneous cooperation in my mind is feasible. Certainly when it comes to security arrangements. Uh, in other words, the United States has not over several administrations rejected the notion of a multilateral arrangement in the Middle East. It's never embraced it, but it has not, uh, it has not rejected it and has at times, including in the Trump administration, actively uh, discussed it. Those discussions didn't go anywhere. But with other words, so you have essentially uh, several major parties, uh, the Russians, which have put forward a proposal, the Chinese, which initially backed the Russian proposal and are now talking about a proposal of their own, built into steps, uh, the United States, at least willing to consider the notion in an environment in which it will want greater burden sharing. The Iranians, even though they uh, you know, reject the, the notion of anybody, any external power being, uh, being involved in, uh, in Middle East, in the Middle Eastern security architecture, have talked about for a, for a very long period of time about a multilateral arrangement in the Gulf. So you have the makings, mind you, this is not gonna be easy. Uh, uh, it's, it's gonna be very tough because you're gonna not, first of all, it's gonna to have to be a step-by-step -step process and you're gonna to start to start involving issues for certainly when you get into arms control regimens that until now have not been negotiable. For example, Israeli nuclear arms. Um, Finally, I, I, I want to make a point on, um, on the issue of China's fundamental approach to the Middle East. First of all, I think there's a fundamental difference in the way China approaches diplomacy and Russia or the United States. Both Russia and the United States think in terms of alliances. China does not. It builds relations with individual states. It has indeed and interestingly enough, in terms of its policy formulation, uh, drawn a, um, a distinction between the Arab world and the non-Arab world in the Middle East. And I think there's a reason for it, which the Chinese will never acknowledge, but which they do recognize. And that is the hegemons, the future hegemons of the Middle East are by and large non-Arab. They're not Arab. What we're seeing in terms of Emirati power, Qatari power, Saudi power, are exploiting windows of opportunity. If there's an Arab contender, it's Egypt, uh, alongside Turkey, Iran, and Israel. And what certainly Turkey and Iran and Egypt have in common is uh, huge populations, three times the size of the largest state in the Middle East, uh, sorry, in the Gulf, maybe Saudi Arabia. 
They have industrial bases. They have highly educated populations. They have battle-hardened militaries. They have identities that are rooted in empire or centuries of, of history. Um, and certainly in the case of, uh, of Turkey and Iran, they have geography uh, as, as, as hubs towards Europe, uh, Central Asia, sort of fulcrum points that link uh, continents. So I think there's good reason for the Chinese in a sense to hedge their bets, keeping in mind that if anyone is a long-term thinker, it's, it's the Chinese. Let me leave it at this and we can um, explore this further in the question and answer. Okay. Um, James, thank you. Thank you very much. So with that, uh, I will close the first round of uh, speeches. And again, a sincere thanks to all uh, four speakers we have. Um, until people raise their hands or write in the chat box their questions, let me start this Q&A segment with a question of my own. And I would like to again uh, pose this question to particularly uh, Kadir. And about this, this question uh, in this typology, uh, in these dynamics that you talked about, the global audience, interdisciplinarity and power and ideology. Uh, if I got them right, and please correct me if I, if I didn't. But can you give specific examples, maybe one or two, mm -hmm. uh, and tell us when do these dynamics clash? Which one comes on top? I mean, I think that's a, that's a good dynamic to figure out when we talk about China and Middle East. Let's start with this, and then I will collect questions, and then I will allow people, if they want to turn on their mic, or if they write in the chat box, and I will ask uh, our speakers those questions. Okay, let's, let's begin with Kadir, if you will. Yeah, okay, thank you very much. Uh, it's a good question, actually. And the cl clash of justifications, or clash of um, China's national interest as well. Um, it means there are, and I also suggest the idea that we should accept the contradictions in Chinese foreign policies toward the Middle East. There are lots of. And uh, for example, on the one hand, they need heavily this energy. And on the other hand, they have as a, a huge uh, pressure uh, from, from the United States. Uh, for example, in a Syrian case, they uh, use sometimes the ideological um, perspective to support the Assad regime. But uh, on the other hand, they uh, heavily need uh, this kind of intervention uh, in the region against the United States or against the other powers to uh, balance, actually. Uh, and, and, and at that moment, uh, China calculate, in my opinion, uh, the best case scenario. And as Alessandro also put it correctly, I see the possibility of this selective engagement. Uh, and it also explains our uh, typology of multiple factors or interdisciplinarity. And sometimes they select the countries, sometimes they select the issues, and they don't talk so much about, for example, uh, they, they, they are basically against the intervention in, in the world politics. They are against every kind of foreign intervention. But in 2015, we have seen an open, direct intervention of Russia in Syria. So what happened? And no, there is a silence in Chinese uh, foreign policy spokesperson. There is no anything mentioning about it. 
so uh, in Palestinian issue, for example, uh, China actually, uh, from again the ideological perspective, supports uh, the Palestinian case, and from history until today. But on the other hand, they need heavily uh, technological uh, support or uh, modern uh, technological devices and raw materials, especially coming from Israel. And you know, under they have under the heavy embargo, uh, especially European arms embargo still effective. Uh, and in that case, for example, they should find an, a position and not all and not a neural, but the best case scenario and to deal with both parts and but in that case China China's national interest uh, in economic development uh, ba basically in my opinion prevail over other issues so uh, in in our typology just explains the China's uh, national interest and transformation of them it's a dynamic process actually for example, if there is a clash, of course, they are changing the national interest in Syria, in Palestine or in other region. For example, uh, so we can easily see ups and downs in China's foreign policy in our towards the region. Uh, in the example of Turkey, I generally claim that in Turkey-Chinese relations have seen also ups and downs and some five years stability and another five years a clash. In 2009, um, Turkish president blamed China as, uh, as you know, they, it, as they are making genocide in Urumqi massacre. And just two years and three years later, we have signed a strategic partnership agreement. And then, uh, that in 2008, since 2018, we are talking about internal in in camps inside the, the Xinjiang. Uh, but there's a silence in Turkish government. So it is a period, but we cannot guarantee that Turkey uh, will behave like that forever. And but it depends on some conditions, of course. So we, I'm talking uh, about the transformation of national interest. So there is no, uh, uh, how can I say, an uh, a static uh, national interest. Uh, of course, it's a different discussion and we should also discuss about what is the national interest actually but in Chinese foreign policy we can easily see this transformation for example ideology can be given another example in 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 the Cold War ideology was a ideology was a tool for uh, Mao Zedong and during the Cultural Revolution they used this um, as, as a tool actually in in our region and there was an economic crisis in like China in 1960. They were uh, supplying arms to, uh, as Alessandro says, to Algeria and Al Fatah and uh, Oman and other, uh, sometimes supporting the uh, regimes, the socialist regimes in, in, in the Middle East. So, what was the reason behind, of course, the ideology? But how this ideology transformed after 1978? Uh, did the Chinese Communist Party change the ideology? No, they are still Chinese Communist Party, but their be behavior in outside, it means the Chinese foreign policy or China's national interest transformed to another one. Now Xi Jinping, for example, is turning to another one. So the clash of justification, yes, I agree with you. There is a possibility of clash, but we 
can overcome this one, uh, the idea that transform makes is that this is a dynamic process. Mm -hmm. So in every stage of the foreign policy, in every period, we should rediscuss, re, uh, maybe, maybe analyze uh, China's foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Okay, Kadir, thank you very much. We have one question, and that is about uh, exactly actually, actually the, the question that I posed to James, and Alessandro also tackled this question. And the question is about whether uh, it's, it's from Alexander Janin, and he asks uh, whether, uh, given the United States policy, so the US looks more inward and they are restructuring their presence in the region. Uh, the question is whether China is going to ramp up its presence into more uh, military and more political and diplomatic engagements. We tackled this, but I would like to give a little tweak to the question. What about the regional players? Do they expect China to play that role in the first place? I mean, is there an expectation as such? Uh, and Alessandro, would you like to say something about that? And then maybe James can also tackle this as well. And then maybe Galip too. I mean, from the regional perspective, from the region, let's turn the lens to them. Do they want China to play that role? On, on that, uh, as I mentioned before, and uh, I will link uh, this, uh, this question to one question that we also received uh, in the Q&A that just finally read about China implication in the digital Silk Road uh, and, uh, and in the big data. Uh, uh, what Galib mentioned before, and I totally agree with it, there is a huge gap between reality and expectation. This gap is related to the fact that the business community also have the perception that China is going to invest massively. And of course, giving them the opportunity to get rich out of it. If we look, for example, about Syria reconstruction, even from the political side, there is a lot of expectation that China is probably the only country, especially after COVID-19, that is able to reconstruct the entire country. But then one is the part, is China willing? To do that. So first and foremost is this expectation. And then linking what Galip said to what James mentioned is still internal to China, uh, this tension between uh, short-term and long-term objective. In the short term, of course, the Belt and Road start, uh, it's inroad everywhere in the world. We are talking now about the Arctic Belt and Road, Belt and Road in South America. But then at the same time, just a couple of years ago, President Xi Jinping himself came out mentioning that China was not willing to invest in projects that were not feasible. And this uh, is one part uh, of this tension. And then in the Middle East, again, uh, having China as a security provider, Everybody know that PLA is reforming quite fast. Uh, Chinese capability uh, about blue sea operation are increasing, but then uh, you cannot compare to the power projection of the United States as a security guarantor. What I see that the biggest friction uh, in the area is going to be in the US from between US and China is not uh, on hard security. And by hard security, I mean boots on the ground. It will be on the cyberspace, uh, on the data. On the, not only on the 5G, but then uh, to the question that has been posed to the public about China big data in road. Uh, the future of the economy is digitalization. If we look, uh, as I mentioned before, at uh, the Vision 2030, uh, the Gulf states are moving, trying to move their economy from uh, hydrocarbon uh, and uh, related economy to a digital economy. And then uh, China is fundamental in this transformation. But then again, in the future of the economy, who controls the data, control the economy? AI 
quantum computing is at the forefront of the future. And this is the real race, the real competition. And the Middle East is already getting sucked in into this competition. Let me be more clear. We are not talking about only Huawei and 5G. We are talking about underwater fiber optic connection, satellite, GPS that is not only more GPS, but is Beidou, Chinese, it's GLONASS, it's Russian, and so on. And then who is going to win the race on the big data? Definitely is going to have a foot on the next economy. And China didn't make a mystery that you want to be the leader in the fourth industrial revolution. If you just look at China 2025 industrial development, China AI paper, and so on. Uh, and most important, China, like Russia, in the cyberspace realm has a very different approach from the West. And this approach is mentioned to the fact that China considers cyberspace as its own sovereign territory. So all the data that are generated in China or that are related to Chinese individual and company then are part of the China national security law. And if we look uh, uh, line by line, this law is already had to add in conflict with different uh, cybersecurity law, for example, the one that the GRP in Europe. And I hope I answered your question. Definitely, Alessandro, thank you very much. Um, James, I think the, the same question, is there an invitation from the region uh, for China well, to I, have I that law? I think that we've got to be more uh, diversified in our evaluation. So with other words, uh, I think the expectations in the region towards China differ from different parts of the region. So Syria, sure, they got nowhere to go in terms of expectation for, for reconstruction. China is really their only address. And there's no question about it that there's a huge gap in between what the Chinese may or may not be willing to do in Syria and what Syrians may expect. I think that you had a much greater expectation gap in the Gulf, but you've had years of dealings with the Chinese. And there's a greater understanding of what, where, where the, what the Chinese are willing and can do uh, at, at this given moment. Again, over time that may change, which goes to uh, Alex's point about the PLA. Uh, and there's again, a, 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 what it would take for the uh, Chinese to engage, not so much in a multilateral uh, environment, but in an, uh, in, an, uh, in, a, in and of themselves, would be a very fundamental, one would be a fundamental break with the foreign policy uh, and defense policy principles of the People's Republic, which includes no foreign bases. And of course, you've already had that break in Djibouti, but I don't think that the Chinese, like the United States, saw power projection across the globe as the way that they really want to project their power. I also think, just to add on to the data issue, that one of the real battlefields, and that may very well be in the Middle East, in terms of uh, a future Middle East security architecture, is going to be data and technology. And you've already seen that with the Americans saying to, um, to the Emiratis, among others, 5G is a problem if you want to, if you want to F-35 or if you, or if you want, or we've seen that in, with the, with the purchase by Turkey of um, the, um, the Russian S-400 uh, anti-missile system. Um, I finally want to make one point on the Uyghurs 
And in terms of public opinion across the Muslim world, the honest answer is we don't know. What we know is that for obvious reasons, uh, the Uyghur issue is a live issue among the population in Turkey. There are, Tur there are Turkic people, there's been long support for Uyghur aspirations, there's a large Uyghur community in, in Turkey, and so on. And, and it in many ways fits Turkish aspirations. And we've seen um, um, support for the Uyghurs in Pakistan. Again, because of cross-border relationships, because of um, uh, intermarriage, and to some degree, ethnic uh, uh, activity. And the same, same in Kazakhstan. We don't know what sentiment is in Indonesia. We also, interestingly enough, I mean, here's a country that has a naturalized Uyghur community, with other words, Saudi Arabia, that has a Saudi community of Uyghur ethnic origin. No doubt that there is empathy with the Uyghurs there. How does that relate to more, a broader uh, 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 sentiment among the Saudi population? I certainly have no indication of what that is. So I think that we've also got to be, you know, instead of going with this broad sweep across the Middle East, we've really got to look at these issues uh, and, and differentiating in what part of the Middle East we're talking about. Great. Um, James, thank you. And Galib, would you like to tackle the same question? If not, then I have other questions, actually. Well, very shortly, actually, I mean, I will second, uh, I will second uh, James, actually. While we discuss China and the US, we should bear in mind the following. The being superpower, being number one in the world is now the geopolitical identity of the US. And with this, it comes like, you know, more willingness to take on security roles, to power projects, to engage in power projection. The China, I mean, from outside it looks, in terms of political psychology, it is still a superpower in making. In terms of capacity, maybe it is a superpower, but in terms of political psychology, it seems that the China is still a superpower in making. I think the gap in the gap in terms of the gap in the both countries, uh, political psychology in this regard, is one way or one explanatory factor that shows why the U.S. is overall is much more likely to go for power projection or to you know utilize hard power, raw power than the China. Uh, because, uh, as, as I said, like being number one has become a geopolitical identity of the U.S. It's an identity. It's not just like a state of uh, state of uh, being. I mean, I remember uh, three years ago, three or four years ago, uh, being in Washington as part of an international task force on the future of the international order. You would hear the following sentence quite often that the China wants to become number one. China is destined to become number one, like this concern. 
and the Americans that was expressing to the Europeans. And then when you look at the Europeans, more, many of them were saying like, yes. So if China wants to become number one, okay. I mean, in that we are not number one. But for the US, it was kind of not a power, it was not just a threat, geopolitical threat. It was an identity threat, uh, these things. So I think when we discuss the China question, we should uh, always uh, keep this uh, in mind. And in the Middle East, is that an invitation? Well, the Middle Eastern countries keep sending invitation uh, often uh, to many different actors. Uh, does that really mean much? I doubt it, because like, you know, when the Middle Eastern actors are squeezed, uh, then you hear them talking about alternatives. This name of alternatives is an, an invitation in itself. But this invitation does not necessarily mean that these countries have a well-developed vision uh, in terms of what should be the US place in the Middle East, what should be the Western place in the Middle East, what should be the Russian place in the Middle East, and what should be the Chinese place in the Middle East. Those invitations are usually sent in a very reactive manner. And uh, the conjecture usually rules supreme while sending this invitation. But the response of the different countries, like you know, the response of the US and China, we should bear in mind the gap between the political psychology of two countries. For one, superpower is an identity. For another one, superpower being a superpower is a process in making, but also a learning process. What does what in what does it entail to be a superpower? I have an Uyghur question. I can respond to it, Omer, if you want. Definitely, definitely, if you want. Uh... It's very short, actually. Yeah. No. So can can China overcome the societal resistance that it experiences through its treatment of Uyghurs by cultivating closer relation with the OIC, etc.? No, because the OIC really doesn't have a presence in the life political life of the Middle Eastern people. Mm -hmm. So the China doesn't have a problem with the governmental circles, with the official circle. The China's trouble is with the, uh, at the popular level. And there, uh, I, again, I agree with James. I think the reaction of, uh, like the popular level reaction uh, differ from one country to another. But I think there is a shared, uh, there is a shared theme in which the overall China is not popular at the societal level. And particularly the Chinese perception of the Uyghur will remain around and will be a very important factor when it comes to uh, regional people's perception of the Chinese image uh, in the region and internationally. Okay, got it. Thank you very much. I mean, there is one more question about the Uyghurs. Of course, on Uyghurs, uh, the, the issue will always come up naturally, I think. And I would like to ask uh, Kadir about this too. Of course, I think bearing in mind uh, that. Uh, Chinese-Turkish relations or China-Middle East, of course, is very much not limited to this, this Uyghur issue. But still, the question is, uh, the dynamics of this Uyghur issue in Turkish-China relations and the place of it. So what do you, I mean, uh, expect, uh, Kadir, about that particular issue uh, in the short term and in the midterm, maybe? You know, the Turkish uh, side and maybe the Chinese side, too. Let's tackle that uh, shortly, if you want. Yeah. Well, okay, uh, thank you for the question. It's uh, really important, but 
in, in, in 10 years ago, for example, uh, when we signed a strategic partnership agreement with China, uh, Turkey, and we had also an Uyghur issue. And just, I'm talking about two years later of Urumqi accident and Urumqi massacre, whatever it is. Um, but how we have signed it? And now why Turkish government is silence? Actually, is a transformation of Turkey, of course, in negative ways, in my opinion. Turkey and China increased its role, its influence uh, in Turkish economy and politics as well. And it, there are, for example, since 2005, uh, since 2008, we have Confucius Institutes. Uh, China increased its media power in Turkey and through China Radio International. Uh, there are lots of universities um, and teaching Chinese. And there is an increase in Turkey uh, and Chinese perception and Chinese and Turkish citizens and Turkish people uh, actually uh, learned and want to learn about this uh, in, 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 in exceptional a development model because the story was uh, China was um, a, a strange model in East Asia using some developmental uh, strategy like Koreans, like Japanese, just about. On the other hand, and politically they were communists. Uh, so, uh, in my opinion, throughout the years, in this uh, 10 years, uh, we have seen lots of changes in Turkish politics as well, and Turkey also, be, you know, becoming more authoritarian. So this problematic nature of Turkish politics created a space for Chinese. So, uh, because uh, and even some politicians, uh, you know, started to see uh, similarities between this. So if the authoritarian development is possible, so why not? We are not implementing it. So we have signed lots of, you know, agreement. By the way, I don't, uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, you know, sign agreement with Chinese, um, uh, you know, uh, etc. Anyway, but we should do it, and we should uh, improve our connection. Uh, they are the second biggest Chinese, uh, second biggest uh, economy in the world. But uh, at the end of the day. Turkey become uh, more dependent on China, and it is an asymmetric dependence uh, in terms of trade, in terms of uh, you know investment, and every aspect of the relations. Turkey started to become uh, more dependent on uh, China, so it created a problem in uh, independent foreign policy decision-making process in Turkey. So I don't think that Turkey is ha, uh, has an independent foreign policy perspective regarding the Uyghur issue. Today in Turkey, we have um, um, AK Party and the Nationalist Parties, uh, an alliance actually, uh, and they are Turkish nationalists and there is an Islamic uh, you know, tendencies in, in current government, but 
even there is no one sentence regarding the Uyghur issue. There is no explanation of it. So, of course, it's an, it shows us the increasing influence and political influence of China on Turkey. It means that China is silencing Turkey on one important issue. So, uh, but I also claim that is a process, it's not a static uh, issue, and it can also change. Turkey has has some policy options regarding the Uyghur issue. There are multiple options, but now the current government doesn't want to implement the strategies and what kind of, for example, international organizations, international law, and European Union countries, they are completely against the China's human rights violations in Xinjiang, for example. Turkey can easily become partner of these countries um, in that specific field. And so Turkey, a lot of policy options actually can use the economy. Uh, of course, Turkey, for example, the BRI and Turkey is important part of it. And but in when you read this some BRI related, um, you know, uh, articles and opinion paper in Turkey, you can e easily see that Okay, we depend on China. We invite China to implement this strategy in Turkey. So we are applauding it. Actually not. Actually, China needs Turkey and other countries to implement this BRI in, this BRI in our region. So interestingly, uh, there is uh, this debate and this, uh, this discussion actually in Chinese um, policies toward Turkey. And now, uh, but there is a possibility to change, as I told you, and there are options that uh, Turkish government can easily uh, change this direction, of course, by negotiating Turkey, uh, negotiating with uh, China. In 2013, I remember that Turkish president of religious affairs, Mehmet Gürmez, visited uh, Xinjiang, and even he uh, made a speech uh, to Uyghur Muslims in a mosque uh, and there was this kind of spaces in, I'm talking to 80 years ago, but why not today? And of course, there are a lot of reasons um, why not yeah, these questions, but um, the one aspect of uh, the reason is uh, this rising influence of China, uh, Turkey. Uh, yes, um, that's my answer. Okay, um, Kadir, thank you. I think we uh, don't have any more uh, questions, so I can um, just allow our speakers if they have any more further additional comments. Um, if not, uh, then uh, we can close out actually, but just okay. At the very last moment, we have a question. Um, okay, let me let me read the question. It's about, I think, sectarianism in the region. Uh, and, uh, well, of course, I mean, it's a very hotly debated issue for the last few years. Um, if any of our speakers have anything on this about the sectarianism and how Chinese presence in the region can be or will be affected uh, by this, uh, we can maybe end with quick uh, responses if you, if you have on this question. I may. James? I may. 
Sure. Um, I would take issue with the fundamental proposition of the question. So with other words, I don't believe that uh, sectarianism is what has driven Middle Eastern geopolitics. I think it's been an instrument in Middle Eastern geopolitics, but it's not been the core driver in any form or fashion. Uh, and as a result of that, I don't think that that's going to expand or affect uh, uh, China, Chinese relations in the area. So whatever concerns Saudi Arabia may have about Chinese dealings with Iran have nothing to do with the fact that the Chinese, that, sorry, that the Iranians are a majority Shiites. Uh, that's not the primary issue. Uh, Neither do I think the fact that the fact that religion, in contrast to, um, to China, plays a major role in the Middle East, not only culturally and socially, but also in terms of geopolitics, and not in terms of um, sectarian differences, but in terms of uh, religious soft power and the increasing importance of religious soft power. None of that do I think will affect uh, China status, abilities, options in the region. Thank you, James. Um, any other responses, I think? No? So uh, with that, I think uh, uh, I'm ready to close out the webinar. I would like to thank our speakers. Uh, a particular thanks to Alessandro for working with us during this process and the Middle East Institute, of course, National University of Singapore. Uh, thank you, James, for being here, Kadir and Galib. I think this was a very fruitful discussion. Uh, and uh, I think we all handled the questions very timely in a very efficient manner. Uh, and thanks, of course, goes to all the participants for patiently listening to us and for, uh, for joining in the discussion with the questions. So thank you all for being here and for this uh, webinar. Okay, thank you very much, Amar. Thank you for having us. Enjoyed thank it. You. Thank you.